based on the documented need for additional education in prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and renal cell carcinoma, the AUA is launching a series of podcasts, the AUA Expert Exchange Podcast, discussions about managing GU cancer. These activities are designed to increase the clinician's competency in the application of new and emerging treatment options, including their mechanisms of actions and associated side effects. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from the following companies. Amgen, Bastellus, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genomic Health, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma. The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credits for your participation in this activity, or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. Hello, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education. Welcoming, welcoming you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. Today's podcast is part of the AUA Expert Exchange podcast discussion about managing GU cancer series. And today's topic is on sequencing of agents and combination therapy in castrate resistant prostate cancer. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Maxwell Meng as my co-host. Dr. Meng is Professor and Chief of Urologic Oncology at the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, Max, welcome to the podcast. Great, thank you very much. So first, I just wanna go over our learning objectives for today, and there are three. First is to identify treatment for non-metastatic and metastatic CRPC and describe the proper order for their administration to manage non-metastatic and metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer with systemic agents by learning the proper candidates for treatment and be able to counsel patients on the pros and cons of therapy. And finally, to review the newer generation anti-androgen agents and their use in non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, and in metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So Max, let's start by sort of uh, defining our relevant patient populations. Yeah, great. I mean, I think first I would say that this is really just a critical topic nowadays, given sort of uh, the number of men that urologists have to deal with prostate cancer. And despite PSA screening and prostate cancer screening, still many men have or will develop metastatic disease over time. Um, and I think it's gotten really complex in the decision-making process the last several years, given new medicines and evidence from well-designed and performed clinical trials. So it's really a lot of different options in this space of both non-metastatic and metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer or CRPC. And I'd say, you know, traditionally, uh, androgen deprivation therapy with either agonists or antagonists have been the mainstay of treating men with advanced or metastatic prostate cancer. 
And this remains the case, although classically, you know, CRPC develops around two years after initiation of ADT. And in the past, there's been really limited secondary treatments and options once you've reached the CRPC, whether metastatic or non-metastatic state. And I think, unfortunately, it still remains that once you have metastatic CRPC, while there are multiple treatment options now, it's still likely incurable. So the goal has been both to sort of prolong life in this disease state and to maintain the quality of life. And sort of to put things in perspective, survival still, once you reach the state, is on the order of two to three years. And with the novel treatments, these add several months. So really, you know, I think still when we step back and look at things, there's a lot of progress still that needs to be made when we're looking at three-year overall survival in these patients. It's still probably only reaching 50%, even with all the novel treatments that we have. Um, and sort of, you know, so metastatic CRPC, I think obviously is one entity that everybody's familiar with. You know, we diagnose that based on imaging studies and bone scans. I think now many men fall into this sort of a newly defined non-metastatic CRP state. So an M0 CRPC. And we kind of define that by really looking at, you know, biochemical recurrence after or while on androgen deprivation therapy. Um, and I think it's critical that first, you know, this is defined by confirming that you do still have a castrate level of testosterone, which is less than 50 nanograms per deciliter. And then you have to have some definition of PSA rise despite having a low testosterone level. Um, and I think what's out there is the Prostate Cancer Working Group 2 definition has been more or equal to a 25% increase in PSA and an absolute increase in PSA that is two nanograms per milliliter above its nadir. That's confirmed over time. So sort of a rising PSA uh, while having very low testosterone levels. So Max, you know, I remember the days when we didn't treat metastatic prostate cancer until it became symptomatic. Now, obviously, with this shift in the consideration of treating even castrate-resistant non-metastatic prostate cancer, this is, you know, this it's it's certainly a shift in thinking over the decades. And, you know, what really brought this on? Well, I think a lot of it is the recognition that, you know, we're not going to cure many people if we wait till later as disease progresses, right? And that the identification of a lot of the treatments that we'll be talking about with, you know, metastatic CRPC, I think the, sh the general trend and whether it's related to, you know, the big pharma pushing you know, all these medicines or agents have been tried earlier in the disease natural history. And I think that's a great question. I think there's a lot of debate because these are gonna have side effects. There's gonna be increased costs. You know, a lot of these medicines patients are gonna be on for a very long duration. They're not short-term. It's okay, how early is too early? Or what's the, you know, the you know cost versus benefit ratio? And I think that's, that's a good question. I think ultimately for patients with non-metastatic disease, sort of the concept is by treating earlier, how much you're going to be delaying development of metastatic disease, does that decrease need for additional treatments such as delaying time to needing cytotoxic chemotherapy? And ultimately, is that going to improve overall survival by uh, 
initiating all of these treatments earlier. And I, I think it gets a little bit too, which we could, we'll talk about at the very end, some of, you know, the treatment paradigms have shifted significantly for, you know, castration sensitive prostate, metastatic prostate cancer as well, where there's in, more intense treatment up front as opposed to sort of sequencing single agents over time. All right, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the the newer agents that are currently in use and how we might use them. Yeah, so I think we'll go through a few of them and some of the evidence um, that support them. I think uh, you know, I think we we can talk about um, the chemotherapy first. I mean, I think you know, docetaxel, taxane-based chemotherapy. That's been around 15 years now, and that has been well established as sort of the standard for metastatic CRPC. And that's really what everything has been tested uh, against over time in two big trials, the TAX-327 and SWOG 9916, which were very similar in results in the fact that uh, there was improvement in overall survival as well as quality of life measurements when compared to mitoxantrone. And it's important to just keep in mind that mitoxantrone was approved in this space of metastatic CRPC, not because of any kind of survival benefit or delay in progression-free survival, um, but really improvement in quality of life and symptoms. Um, but the, the docetaxel comparative against mitoxantrone both improve symptoms and improve uh, median overall survival. Um, and then since that time, uh, we have a multiple agents, uh, abiraterone, which is approved both in the pre and post docetaxel setting, uh, abiraterone acetates and androgen synthesis inhibitor, and it acts by blockage of the CYP17A enzyme, uh, which stops uh, or inhibits synthesis of androgens such as testosterone and dihydrotestosterone. Um, I think it's important to note that it, it does inhibit glucocorticoid biosynthesis as well, and thus it needs to be administered with prednisone to prevent um, glucocorticoid deficiency and mineralocorticoid uh, excess. So uh, abiraterone needs to be administered with um, prednisone. Uh, enzalidomide, uh, also used in both the pre and post docetaxel setting, um, is part of a, a group of drugs along with apalutamide and uh, darolutamide. Uh, these are non-steroidal antiandrogens. So these are second generation antiandrogens. And uh, enzalutamide is an antagonist to the androgen receptor. So it really blocks the effects of testosterone and DHT. Uh, it is different from the first generation antiandrogens, which have been around for a while, uh, because it has a much higher binding affinity for the androgen receptor. Uh, but it not only blocks the androgen receptor uh, better than the older first generation antiandrogens, um, but in, it is a signaling inhibitor since it doesn't promote translocation from the uh, androgen receptor from the, to the nucleus um, from the uh, membrane. And it also prevents androgen receptor binding to DNA and other coactivator proteins. Um, so all of these act in a similar fashion, uh, these secondary antiandrogens. I think the key thing to remember about these medicines, especially enzalutamide, and we think uh, apalutamide is uh, there may be some higher incidence of neurologic effects or seizures associated with them that were shown in the early studies, although some of the sub subsequent studies, the uh, incidence of these events may not be as high as initially thought. 
so apalutamide sort of mechanistically and structurally is very similar to enzalutamide. So I think their side effect profiles and their efficacies appear to be very similar. Darolutamide is actually a little bit different. So its structure is different from enzalutamide and apalutamide. And there's actually less crossing of this uh, uh, from across the blood-brain barrier. So there's the hypothesis that some of these neurologic side effects, seizures, may be less with darolutamide. Uh, and the second thing to keep in mind is it's actually not a CYP inhibitor. And thus, it's less likely to be associated with some of the drug-drug interactions that you can see with uh, apalutamide and um, uh, enzalutamide. So for example, uh, you probably don't have to change Coumadin dosing with darolutamide because it's not a CYP inhibitor and won't affect its uh, metabolism. So I guess let's talk a little bit about um, non-metastatic cashew-resistant prostate cancer. Um, first of all, is there ever a role for chemotherapy in the non-metastatic patient? And then when do we institute these next the the next line of treatments the the particular um compounds that you just discussed yeah so i i think uh for sure um the guidelines and the evidence do really do not suggest uh docetaxel chemotherapy in this m0 non-metastatic crpcc so i think that that is pretty clear and then the question then becomes okay in those patients um who you think you want to start therapy, what are the treatment options? And I think right now those include enzalutamide, uh, darolutamide, uh, as well as um, uh, enzalutamide. Um, and again, I think how you select these patients, again, uh, the question that you had asked earlier, you know, why do we treat these patients earlier in this disease state? Uh, I think the thing to keep in mind is, I think ultimately this M0 state, we probably assume that some of these patients just have undetectable micrometastatic disease. So again, is there a big difference between sort of, you know, subclinical, uh, you know, M0 disease, or is it just along a continuum? I think that's going to change over time as we have newer imaging modalities, such as PSMA PETS yet, we may find that a lot of these people who we really thought were non-metastatic CRPC were truly metastatic CRPC. So I think it's a little bit of a blurred line there. Um, but when picking these patients and most of the patients who have been enrolled in these clinical trials um, were patients that were thought to be at higher risk of developing metastatic disease uh, in the near future. And again, they selected a lot of these patients a lot uh, based on PSA doubling time. And uh, almost all of these studies use a criterion of PSA doubling time less than or equal to 10 months. And again, older studies and contemporary studies say shorter PSA doubling times is going to be associated with more rapid clinical progression. So those are the patients that you say, okay, let's think about doing some earlier therapy. And going sort of um, through each of these, um, I think we are starting with the apalutamide that was studied in the Spartan study. And again, all of these studies were published and all these medicines were approved in just the last uh, 18 months. Um, but in the Spartan study was a phase three trial that looked at over 1200 men with non-metastatic uh, CRPC, again, with doubling times 10 months or less. Um, and the endpoint of this study, as well as the enzalutamide study, uh, and the darolutamide study, they're looking at metastasis-free survival. So 
um, I think sort of novel and different than other trials that have primarily relied on looking at overall survival uh, for FDA approval. All of these were looking at metastasis-free survival as the endpoint. And uh, apalutamide compared to placebo had significantly improved metastasis-free survival, 40 and a half months versus 16 months. And all the secondary endpoints, such as time to symptomatic progression and need for chemotherapy, were all reached and positive. Um, and of note, out of these uh, 1,200 men in the study, only two seizures occur. So again, getting back to some of the side effects um, that may be associated with it. Uh, overall survival um, information and results for apalutamide are not yet mature, although there's a trend. The hazard ratio is improved for apalutamide at uh, 0.75. Uh, so similar uh, study design for enzalutamide in the PROSPER study, and again, very similar results. Uh, it was patients with PSA greater than or equal to two and a doubling time of less than 10 months, looking at metastasis-free survival in 1,400 men. And again, very similar absolute numbers and magnitude of benefit. The metastasis-free survival in the enzalutamide group was 37 months versus 14.7 months in the placebo group. Um, and I think we need to wait again to look at the overall survival benefit, but this, this seems to be the same magnitude as the apalutamide with a hazard ratio of 0 0.8. And 33 patients had convulsions. So again, getting a little bit to the question of are there increased neurologic side effects with apalutamide and enzalutamide. And then uh, with finally with uh, darolutamide with the Aramis study, uh, and this was just FDA approved in July of 2019. Uh, looking at 1,500 men, again, the primary endpoint was metastasis-free survival, very similar results, 40.4 uh, months uh, uh, with the darolutamide and in the placebo arm, 18 months. So again, the numbers and the magnitude are all very, very similar across these three agents. Uh, I think the final note, and it, it is in the AUA uh, guidelines on uh, CRPC, uh, there is a consideration that could aberrat around. So again, different than uh, the second uh, generation antiandrogens. Can that be used in this setting? And as stated in the guidelines, this can be considered if the patients for some other reason are not able to take the three FDA approved medicines that we had talked about. And this was looked at the Imogen study where they looked at men with high risk disease, uh, PSAW times less than 10, but it was a slightly higher risk group compared to the other studies that I've described where the PSA uh, was greater than, the absolute PSA was greater than 10. Um, and the PSA doubling time in this was three months, so relatively short PSA doubling time. They did not look at um, or publish yet on metastasis-free survival or over-survival, but there was a very robust PSA response with 87% uh, of patients having a greater than 50% reduction in PSA, and then 60% of patients with a greater than 90% reduction in PSA. So that looks promising, but as of yet, abiraterone is not approved for first-line treatment of the non-metastatic CRPC patient. So is it safe to assume that it's, it would be difficult to say one of these agents is better than the other because I suspect they haven't been compared to each other? Absolutely. So I think um, all three of the agents uh, have proven very similar when you look at the actual numbers and results. So I think it's not clear that one is clearly better than the other. I think, you know, is potentially 
does does darolutamide have some potential advantages if you had a patient with some uh, neurologic history or history of seizures or you know was on a medicine that uh, was dependent on sit metabolism could that at least theoretically be preferable to enzalutamide and apalutamide the answers maybe and in clinical practice do you also use that PSA doubling time of 10 months or less as uh, as in an selecting patients. Yeah, I mean, I think it, we, we want to find patients who we think are going to really benefit from initiation of therapy at this earlier time frame, as opposed to watching them over time. And again, I think so you do need some longitudinal PSA history and monitoring, um, no evidence of meds and sort of say, you know, but if you have a P patient with a low PSA, two or three, balanced against their age and, you know, health status, and that the PSA doubling time is pretty slow, I'm not sure they necessarily need earlier treatment with one of these uh, novel antiandrogens. Great. All right, let's move on to metastatic castrate-resistant <laughs> prostate cancer. Yeah, I mean, I think for metastatic disease, there are really a, a multitude of treatment options. And I think this hasn't changed too much in the last year or two. And I think, uh, you know, the uh, AUA guidelines and the index patients that are put out there cover these fairly well. Um, and I think a, the new nuances of decision making are based on, you know, performance status, whether the patient has symptoms that we can attribute to the prostate cancer or not, have they or have they not been treated previously with chemotherapy, docetaxel, and sort of what is their extent of disease? Do they have bone-only disease or not? And those patients who are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, uh, the approved agents include abiraterone, enzalutamide, Cipule cell T, CIP T, and docetaxel in those with good performance status. And, and again, in, in the AUA guidelines, this is sort of index patient number two, if people want to refer to that. Um, some of the early studies in uh, the pre-docetaxel space, Chuck Ryan's uh, tax uh, study 302, compared um, placebo and an abiraterone improved radiographic progression through free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.53, as well as overall, overall survival hazard ratio of 0.81, so significantly improved. Um, and while it was previously proved, um, abiraterone, for the post-docetaxel space, it was approved for the pre-chemotherapy setting in 2012. So again, it's sort of, you know, a proven agent in later in disease, post-docetaxel, tested in the pre-chemotherapy space, showing good results and then improved. So sort of the trend of moving these agents earlier in the natural history of disease. Um, and I think it's important to note in these studies that were done, the median overspell survival in you know, the abiraterone group and the placebo group were both greater than 30 months. Um, and the, the difference between the two, the improvement was relatively limited in three months. So again, gets to the question of how much clinical, while we can, you know, statistically, there's a difference between the arms that gets to the question of, okay, what's the clinical benefit for the patient? And on absolute level, when, when uh, median survival is 30 months, we're talking about a three-month difference. So uh, is, that, is that worth the cost or not, which is a question I'm not sure I can answer. Um, Enzalutamide was studied in a very similar prevail trial. Um, and 
in, in this trial, patients had not received prior chemotherapy or ketoconazole or abiraterone, and there was a 29% reduction in death. So again, very similar outcomes to the abiraterone study. And I think the question is, how do we compare Abby and enzalutamide to docetaxel? And I think most people would agree that Abby and enzalutamide are overall better tolerated than chemotherapy. Um, and in the older chemotherapy studies, docetaxel studies, about 25% uh, of patients had severe side effects, and 11% of patients discontinued treatment due to these adverse events. Um, so I think that's how I think the trend in 2019 tends to be Abby um, or enzalutamide over docetaxel, docetaxel. But again, I think a lot of it is patient preference as well as the preference of the uh, the treating oncologist. Uh, I think in the last couple of years, there's been a little bit of a trend away from using CIP-T, even though it's approved and there's a preference to use abiraterone or enzalutamide, even though CIP-T has been around and approved since 2010. Um, and just to remind everybody, CIP-T is an immunotherapy that's generated via leukapheresis in order to obtain the angina-presenting cells, the dendritic cells, which are then incubated with a fusion protein of um, prostate acid phosphatase along with a signaling factor for the cytokine GMCSF. And then this is then reinfused back to the patient over three courses separated by two weeks. Um, and the clinical indication and approval for CIP-T is really limited to asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic patients uh, with metastatic CRPC. So I think that's critical to uh, uh, remind everybody of. And I think, again, I think the bias is if you're going to use CIP-T, use it earlier in the natural history of disease. Maybe it works better when there's less disease burden. And I think there's also the caveat that when you use CIP-T, you should not be waiting for and expect a PSA response. When you look at the studies that were done with CIP-T, while there were patients who had great responses that were assessed radiographically, didn't correlate with PSA. So you can't really use PSA as a surrogate for assessing response to CIP-T. Matt, um, what, about, what about for the patient who has symptomatic bone metastasis? Any difference in uh, treatment? Yeah. So I think if, when you start looking at patients who have uh, symptomatic prostate cancer, um, and you have to determine whether those symptoms are due to the cancer or something else, um, then it is important to determine, okay, um, is it bony disease only? Is it bony and visceral or not? And in that space, um, you know, abiraterone, enzalutamide, and chemotherapy, uh, as well as radium-223 are all approved. And again, um, I think a lot in this space where there are symptoms, um, Docetaxel is very reasonable given uh, results from the TAX327 trial. And many patients in that trial had symptomatic disease. Um, also just presented in the last week from uh, ESMO 2019, uh, there was a cohort study of our 400 men that tried to look at this question with symptomatic uh, CRPC, is it better to do chemotherapy or ABI or enzalutamide? And um, despite patients in that docetaxel arm having worse prognosis, more a greater percentage of patients had visceral metastasis, the overall survival between those receiving chemo up front 
versus Abby or Enza was very similar, all around 25 to 28 months. Although Abby and Enza was associated with better progression-free survival. So I think that called into the question in the real world in a cohort study, okay, do you do chemo first in these symptomatic patients or Abby and Enza? I don't think the answer is so clear right now. Um, in patients with symptomatic bone metastases um, and no visceral metastases otherwise, then I think uh, it's very reasonable to consider use of radium-223, which was studied in the Alsimka trial. And uh, radium-223 is a bone-targeted alpha emitter, and it is a calcium emetic, so it's taken up at the area of bony metastases specifically. And in this pivotal trial results, there was uh, an improvement in overall survival of 14 months compared to 11 months, the hazard ratio being 0.7. So I think question to consider is, okay, in patients with symptomatic disease, what, what, what's our first step again? Bone only, I think radium two two three. Um, uh, the outcomes are very good. But then, how do you how do you consider docetaxel versus abiraterone versus enzalutamide? I think there's some of the you know discussions may center on cost, ease of administration, sort of duration of treatment. Uh, I think it's clear that the new agents are more expensive compared to docetaxel, uh, and they tend to be given continuously until there's disease progression. So I think the how long patients are on, they say, okay, am I going to be treated for six months, a year? And I think the answer is, well, you're going to be kept on these medicines until something happens down the line. Whereas docetaxel is really, you know, treatment is a defined period, I think either six, between six to 10 cycles. So patients can be done with therapy as soon as 15 or 16 weeks. So I think a patients with good performance status and can tolerate docetaxel, um, many of them may prefer that it's a more discrete treatment approach. All right, let's talk a little bit about the patient who has already been treated in one way or another for their CRPC and now they need further treatment. So kind of where do you go uh, when the patient's had docetaxel and is progressing or has had another agent and is progressing? Yeah, and I, I think this is the area that's evolving and developing. I think, uh, you know, I think if patient has had prior docetaxel, then um, agents that are typically used include abiraterone, enzalutamide, as well as cabazitaxel. And so cabazitaxel is a second generation taxane. Um, and it's been looked at and it appears to improve both overall survival and progression-free survival um, in, in patients who have been previously treated with docetaxel, although the comparator in that arm was mitoxantrone, which we talked about was sort of the first uh, chemotherapy that was approved for prostate cancer. Um, and uh, so cabazitaxel is an option. And actually, there was a, another presentation from the recent ESMO meeting, uh, the CARD trial, C-A-R-D, where they looked at cabazitaxel after prior docetaxel and then a second androgen targeted inhibitor. So somebody who had gotten docetaxel and then, you know, Abby or Enza, what do you get? You know, is it cabazitaxel, second line chemo, or do you switch to the alternative uh, androgen targeted therapy that you had used previously? And um, interestingly, those patients who had seen one of the uh, androgen-targeted therapies 
did less well when they got the alternative one compared to cabazitaxel. So it gets to, you know, if you've, you've gotten docetaxel and then one of these second generation uh, androgen targeted, probably doing the other second generation anti-androgen targeted isn't going to be as good as do using second line chemotherapy. So that was an interesting setting. We'll have to see if that actually pans out in subsequent studies. So what can we expect in the future? There's certainly been uh, a lot of development in the area of treating uh, CRPC, uh, probably uh, one of the more dynamic areas uh, in urology when you look at the past decade. What's What's coming down the pipe? Yeah, I think the thing that we're all kind of looking towards is sort of, you know, biomarkers, not only for, you know, CRPC, prostate cancer, but probably all the malignancies we deal with in urologic oncology is, okay, how can we better select patients who are appropriate therapy or who are not going to respond to therapy? And I think, um, you know, I don't think we're quite there yet, and it's going to take a little bit of time. I think an example of that was some of the studies looking at the um, androgen receptor splice variant, so the ARV7, which was looked at by the Hopkins group, where they looked at uh, and tried to identify these ARV7 um, splice variants in blood from circulating tumor cells, and this seemed to appear to... Um, confer resistance to enzalutamide or abiraterone. And there are some uh, tests out there commercially available to look at this, although in general, there's this is not used so frequently to say, okay, we shouldn't use Abby or Enza because you have ARB at seven splice variants, at least not when you're using it in the first line setting. Maybe useful when you're looking at after chemo, you've gotten one, one of these treatments, whether Abby or Enza, and you may want to look at this to say, okay, what are we going to do for second and third line treatments? Um, I think other interesting um, potentials that are out there is now there's a lot of interest in uh, PARP inhibitors um, and that there are uh, PARP inhibitors such as Olaparib, um, which look to be very effective in patients with DNA repair pathway de defects such as BRCA2, BRCA1, and ATM. And so sort of testing for some of these um, uh, pathways may help us select appropriate uh, sort of targeted uh, PARP inhibitor therapy. And again, there was the profound trial presented at ASMO, ESMO recently, which showed that for patients with metastatic CRPC, um, if you tested and they had uh, DNA pathway repair defects, that elaborate was much more effective with respect to both overall survival and progression free survival compared to enzalutamide or abiraterone. So I think this gets a little bit to um, some of the push now looking at genetic testing for prostate cancer. And I think part of that um, is looking at uh, DNA pathway repair enzymes. Um, and finally, I think related also to that is how do we pick patients for immunotherapy? I think for the last 20 years, we've said, oh, immunotherapy hasn't been so effective for prostate cancer as opposed to bladder cancer, renal cell carcinoma. But I think it's changing now. And I think, you know, there is approval for pembrolizumab across all tissue types um, that it's approved for patients with microsatellite instability, which we're finding that it does occur with prostate cancer. And GUASCO last year, there was some uh, interesting preliminary presentations about using pembrolizumab and uh, immunotherapy um, 
for prostate cancers. I think that's going to be evolving rapidly over time. And how we find those patients who are best uh, fit for immunotherapy, I think, remains to be determined. How does one determine uh, microsatellite instability? So there are a lot of ways to do that. I think based on um, tissue, you can look at immunohistochemistry. Um, you can do further genomic testing, uh, both for tumor and germline testing. So there are a variety of ways that that can be done. So the last thing I, I, I would like you to, to comment on is, and we mentioned this briefly uh, at the start of the podcast, is metastatic castrate sensitive prostate cancer. Where, uh, what does the future hold? Yeah. And I mean, I think that, again, traditionally we'd say, okay, you know, you have a newly diagnosed patient or a patient who has metastases, never seen androgen deprivation, the, the standard would be ADT alone. Um, although based on the charted pivotal charter trials, you know, those patients probably benefit from getting ADT plus chemotherapy up front. Although now there are trials that show that ADT plus apalutamide and ADT plus enzalutamide have similar beneficial effects. So again, it's going to be similar to what we've talked about in the um, CRPC space that the, in the metastatic castration sensitive space, is it ADT plus chemo or ADT plus some of these novel androgen directed therapies? And I think um, how they compare, I think we're going to have to figure out. Well, as I mentioned before, certainly uh, a lot has changed in the last decade uh, with respect to how we treat our patients with um, metastatic and now non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, and it looks like we're heading towards changes in uh, in the treatment of uh, castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. Max, that was really a, an excellent uh, and comprehensive review of where we stand with uh, with the agents that are available, um, with combination therapy, uh, and with what we can expect in the future. Uh, and I suspect if we were to do this podcast a couple of years from now, um, it might be a little bit different than it is today as there is so much uh, excitement around this uh, area and so much uh, developing. And hopefully um, we'll see even more uh, with respect to biomarkers and specific uh, patient selection uh, for our various therapies. Um, and uh, on, on behalf of... Uh, uh, the AUA Office of Education, I really want to thank you um, for this uh, very comprehensive review on the topic. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think things are changing constantly. I think it's not even years. It's every six months at the meetings, we're hearing about, uh, you know, great progress and uh, results from new trials. So this is really an exciting time for patients with advanced prostate cancer. Well, thanks again, and I also would like to thank our audience. Uh, as always, if you would like more information, please visit our website at auanet.org slash university. Thank you.